0: If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General
1: Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman.
0: I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome
1: to, the to the Calling the History, history podcast. podcast. Welcome back to part two of Octavius Cato. In the last episode, we talked about the courage required to vote, knowing that the term club law existed. Caddo also explained why the Irish were so hard on black men trying to vote. And we learned about his crusade to educate and inspire young black children by presenting them with role models at the Institute for Colored Youth. In the next episode, you'll hear about his baseball career that brought blacks and whites onto the same field for the first time in history. You'll hear about the absurd law that allowed blacks to ride on streetcars, but not in them. And you'll learn what Cato was really fighting for that was far more important than civil rights. Do you fear that somebody could get crazy and point a gun at you and
0: something terrible could happen? I would more classify it as not necessarily fear, but accepting that this is going to happen to you. Because, I'll give you an example. The previous night, the Democrats, in an attempt to intimidate us from voting, two black men were shot, and one of them died. As a person who's been very visibly promoting voting rights, I know that I'm a potential target and I know there's a possibility that I could be attacked. But you know, like so many people in throughout history, when you take a stand for what is right, and again, I can just go back to my familiarity with certain biblical characters like Christ and the apostles and Paul, and those kinds of people, they know Their lives are on the line, but they are willing to risk that, to lay their life down. It is part of the process to bring change.
1: That makes a lot of sense, because I guess if you're a true believer in your cause, and the only other option is not to take action. And what kind of life is that if you're not doing the thing that you could do just because you're afraid something bad could happen?
0: That's right. You don't want to unreasonably put your life on the line for no good reason or to do it foolishly. But if you are simply doing that which you can do to affect change and that puts you in danger, so be it.
1: I totally understand what you're saying, not doing this, something unnecessary. You're not running around the polling stations with a T-shirt that says, I hate whites or anything like that. No, right?
0: no, you, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you just know just sort of like by definition, <laughs> just by the natural way that things will go when you are going against a hateful, oppressive, yeah. racist system that is determined to get its way It's determined to diffuse the effect of people having voting rights. You just know that something could bad happen to you.
1: Let's talk about something a little bit more positive. And uh, when I say more positive, it's positive for me because I can look at it from a thousand feet and I can see it from a distance and it just looks like a wonderful thing because – you've already gone through the struggle of making this happen. And what I want to talk about is baseball. I understand that you're not just a great teacher and student and activist and loving your fellow man and religious man and all these wonderful things, but you're also a pretty
0: solid athlete. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I really, at one point, loved to play cricket. And when this baseball thing began to be more prominent, boy, I loved baseball. And you know when you work hard, you have the right to play hard too, yeah, and many in Philadelphia that had education, and I'm talking about whites and blacks, a lot of us we wanted to enjoy this game that that was so competitive and so fun, so yeah, I was very interested in baseball, in fact, I became captain of a black baseball team that consisted many, and there are many members from the Institute for Colored Youth that are on that. And I don't shrink back from saying, boy, we became one of the best black baseball teams around. And, you know, to say you're one of the best black baseball teams around, well, that's good. But what would be better is just to say we were one of the best Baseball teams, period, white or black. But boy, it was a struggle in order for us to even get on the same field with a white baseball team, because they would typically refuse to do so.
1: Isn't baseball a fair sport? Why does it matter?
0: Well, again, when you have this problem with race, from what I've been able to observe among the white players, because we certainly did, make gestures to say hey we want to be included because there was a baseball league in philadelphia and we wanted to be part of it and we felt like we should be part of it however when we applied the response that we got back was that there were too many white baseball players that would see this as an affront to them that somehow playing against us would be the wrong thing to do because we really weren't on the same level as they were as a human being. And that thought was pretty prominent in the city, but that did change in the fall of 1869 because then there was a white baseball team. And I'm telling you, this was, a baseball team that historically had taken leadership in the sport and was regarded as absolutely the best white baseball team around, and they were called the Olympics. But they did eventually agree to play against us. So you did play the and Olympics? We, oh, yes. We did. We did play the Olympics. We were please, please tell me you won. We were not. Victorious. Now, I don't have any excuses. However, I do have an explanation. Okay. We had a tremendous picture, and I mean, I don't think there's a better picture in this city, white or black. But in the top of the second inning, when we actually had a 3-1 lead, he injured his shoulder.
1: Oh, we your had, ace pitcher got hurt.
0: Yeah. Our star pitcher in, injured his shoulder, and we had to replace him with his backup. Mm. Now, his backup was good, but he really wasn't good enough. And we ended up losing that game by a tremendous margin. The score was 44-23. to 23. We <laughs> lost by 21 runs. Now, I will say this, before the game started, we had determined that we were not going to dispute calls. You see the way it worked. There was one umpire, and if there was a call or if there was a dispute between the teams, that one referee would just sort of come in at the end and resolve it. We wanted to create an impression that we were not hostile hard to get along with people so before the game we agreed we're not going to dispute any call we're just going to let them make whatever call the other side thought was right we just went along with it and there were some people who thought that really worked tremendously to our disadvantage so we ended up losing that that first game However, in the second game that we played against the white team, about a week or so later, we said, you know what? We're going to argue calls. And, <laughs> and making sure that we're doing it sort of in a gentlemanly way. Sure. We're not going to be angry. We're not going to be unreasonable. But we are not just going to let all the calls go to the other side. And we actually ended up winning that game. 27
1: to 17. Have there been black teams that have played white teams before this?
0: No. This was the first time it happened anywhere in this country.
1: You and played it, it, it in the first baseball game where a black team played a white team, and that was the first game in yes. history, and you played in that game.
0: Yes. Yes. And I happen to be the leader of the team. I was regarded as being fairly skillful. I played some shortstop second base, and I was second in the batting order. I did pretty well.
1: I heard that you were the best player on the team. That's what I heard.
0: Well, I'm too humble to, to agree with you. So, but other people might? Is that what you're saying? I'm far too humble. I'm far too humble to agree with you. As I mentioned, I, if I had to pick out the best player, I would say it was that pitcher. Because he was basically unhittable. I had a high respect, and many had a high respect for his skills.
1: Yeah, well, it seems like you had you, you a nice balance in your life. I mean, you're very athletic, and you're involved in everything else. Is that something that came from your dad, just this balance? Sometimes people get lost in one thing, and that's all they ever do. And, you know, you've got this nice relationship with your fiancé, it seems like, and you've got the school and the kids and the baseball. Did your dad live like that?
0: No, I think my dad was a lot more focused on his work and he was a lot more focused on his ministry. In fact, he served many years as the head of St. Thomas' African Episcopal Church, which was the first black church here in Philadelphia. And in addition to that, he felt it was necessary to get a list of all the African churches and all of the history of those churches. And he really pursued those kinds of things pretty much with his whole heart. Me, I had a little bit more leeway because I think I was exposed to sports and things that he was never exposed to. And so I tended to also want to enjoy playing sports in addition to my academic achievements now i'd like to mention that everyone in philadelphia was not excited about our baseball team the Pythians. there were some uh, an older man by the name of william still and he's basically regarded as the father of the underground railroad he was very critical of us because he was saying look at all the time and the resources that you are wasting playing baseball when we have other far more important things that we need to be pursuing for the benefit of our race. He basically saw it as frivolous entertainment. And I can tell you, I had some agreement with that. And actually, the second game, that they, the game that the Pippians won, that would be my last game. From that time, I gave 100% of my time working to get voting rights for our people.
1: Tell me about William Still. I've, I've heard this name, and it seems like he's a very significant person with the Underground Railroad.
0: Oh, absolutely. Tell, tell um, me about him, your relationship
1: with him, who he is.
0: Yeah, certainly knew very much of him. In fact, I was thrown off the streetcars in Philadelphia, as was he, as many other African-Americans as well in this city. But actually he was the last of many children whose parents had one point been enslaved, but they ran away and they settled in New Jersey. Eventually he ends up coming to Philadelphia And he ends up working as a clerk for the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. And his responsibility was to meet with all of the newly escaped people and facilitate a way for them to either go to Canada or to move somewhere else to avoid recapture. And he actually wrote a book called the Underground Railroad, where he chronicled all of his interviews with escaped enslaved people. And in fact, one of the ones that came to his office was his long lost brother who had been left behind in slavery more than 50 years ago. His brother, his name was Peter. His mother was not able to take him and another boy that she had when she escaped. She had to leave them behind. She had no choice. William Still is recorded to have have helped 800 to escape slavery and get freedom, 800 people. He knew Harriet Tubman because when Harriet Tubman came to Philadelphia, she would meet with him because he had a lot of connections in the city that could facilitate her getting escaped slave people to freedom.
1: Well, they were probably best of friends then. What? What did, did, Are you acquainted with Ms. Tubman?
0: No, I didn't have any real contact with her. More, I'm more on the academic side and other initiatives that i'm involved in
1: when it comes to william still i mean this guy sounds like the guy that can get some things done that's for sure and is definitely committed to his cause did once you quit playing baseball did did he let that go did you and him have a good relationship
0: yeah i didn't have a lot of contact with him you know after because i was so busy traveling all over new jersey pennsylvania holding all kinds of meetings to to get people together to promote voting rights for people. And I helped to form chapters of an organization called the Equal Rights League that, that was there. So I know that he would have appreciated what I did because, again, his perspective of baseball was it was frivolous entertainment where there was m- many more things that we should be devoting our time to for the cause of equality for our people.
1: So let's talk about Frederick Douglass for a minute. I had an interesting Mm. conversation with Frederick Douglass here not too long ago, and I understand there was a time where you and him got together and were doing some recruiting for, I think, soldiers for the Civil War?
0: Yes, myself and 56 African Americans, including Frederick Douglass, had actually put together a poster where we were trying to motivate African-American men to enlist. So, yes, he was one of those. He spent a lot of time in Philadelphia promoting, advocating for African-American men to join, enlist in the Civil War. And, in fact, after we, we were successful in getting voting rights in a voting rights celebrations parade, and he was the last speaker at the end of that march.
1: So did you did you and he, did you see eye to eye? Were you guys close friends? Or how did he feel about the parade, what you were doing? What can you tell me about
0: him? I can tell you that he was, without doubt, one of the most popular black men in Philadelphia because he had, on a number of occasions, given speeches and did a lot to promote the cause of getting men to join, to serve. And he kind of also had a reputation of, you know, like he would typically be the last speaker. There were a number of speakers on the program. He would be the last one. And he kind of had this reputation of trying to put everybody else that spoke before him in their place. And of course, he would, say something critical. He would make a critical comment about what a former speaker said. And actually in the Voting Rights Parade, when I had my chance to speak, again, because I'm the son of a minister, I was taught that when any progress was made in the struggle for equality, we ought to give thanks to God. And so that's what I did. I stood up And I said, you know what, we really need to give God thanks and the glory for what he has done in helping us to get our voting rights. Well, when Frederick Douglass had his time to speak, he referred to the remarks that I made as Hackney Chance. He really tried to put things more into perspective in what people had done, what we had done in getting our voting rights versus what God had done. And I kind of could understand why he had that perspective. You see, unlike me, Frederick Douglass was enslaved before right. he got his freedom. And he would make it known that the worst slave masters that he ever saw were the ones that would pull out the Bible. And they would talk about God to the slave. And I think that had a tremendous influence on him and his perspective. I know he was a Christian. I feel that probably his... Experience seeing people refer to the Bible and refer to God while simultaneously brutalizing people had an impact on him that I didn't have because I was never enslaved. So I understood why maybe he wouldn't put as much emphasis on giving thanks to God than just sort of giving thanks or just appreciating the fact that he had bullying rights. So, Why,
1: Boy, that makes a lot of sense. You had mentioned earlier that slaveholders would take pieces of the Bible and use the pieces that could motivate their slaves to remain slaves. And I know there was even right. a, like a, an abridged version of the Bible that they would hand out back in that time. Yeah, and he, I could totally see him being affected because the Bible was always used throughout his youth as a tool for evil.
0: That's right. And I think that really, that tendency for people to take the Bible and twist it around for their own ends, people can easily fall into that if you don't read the Bible for yourself. If you're just going to believe somebody who says, hey, the Bible says this, therefore this, well, you're in line to be deceived better to have the ability to sit down and read it for yourself so you don't have that imposed upon your thinking. You just simply can read it as it was. Now, I'd like to mention that I made another comment at the end of that speech that he didn't agree with when he had his chance. <laughs> I had mentioned that we really ought to support the Republican candidates. But when he had his chance to speak, he let it be known that he didn't think that we should just go ahead and support the Republican candidates. He more made a comment like, well, that's up to the individual to decide which candidate they would be supporting, whether they would be Republican or Democratic. And I think, he probably made that comment, not realizing what I had already said to the Republicans right to their face. I told the Republican leadership that they could count on our support only if they had held certain principles. And I told them that the black man knows on which side of the line to vote. He not only reads, he remembers, and better still, he thinks. So perhaps Frederick wasn't aware that was my position, but at the time that I made those comments, the Republican candidates were the clear choice for black people to support because they absolutely supported our right to ride on streetcars they supported the fight to end slavery and they now were absolutely supporting the initiative to get us our voting rights as well
1: so how did you leave things with him obviously he is a, a a well-liked person a powerful speaker and had some things to say that made you feel a little uncomfortable did you how did you leave things with him
0: i left it go like i said i understood where he may have had a different perspective on th- giving thanks to God for getting voting rights because of his experiences as a slave. And I kind of just let that go. Yeah, okay. I didn't see it would be beneficial to challenge him because, as I mentioned, he did have kind of an ego. <laughs> and I didn't <laughs> think it would be smart to confront him, certainly not publicly on some of the statements that were made.
1: Just like the baseball game, you don't have to win every battle to win the war. That's right. Yeah.
0: That's right. Yeah. It's now, a process.
1: Yeah. Well, no, it, I can see that totally, and it's it even it's clearer than ever as I'm talking to you. I, I love your approach to this. Can you tell me about the—I when? I had read one time that when you were recruiting some of these black soldiers, and you created yes. some sort of—you had a group of volunteers, and yes. then you— Took them to the government or one of the generals and said that okay we're ready to fight and they said no thanks
0: is is that true well yeah the story went like this the Confederates are winning a lot of battles and they are now right at the door at in Pennsylvania so that really did motivate the governor of Pennsylvania to really start recruiting black soldiers because they just didn't have enough white soldiers to repel the confederates and based on that and actually even before that african americans started to say hey if we want freedom and equality for our people we're going to have to get out there on that battlefield and we began to train. And I actually became a leader of a group of 90 black men who started to train. And I can tell you, we actually met and gathered at Independence Hall where we were basically sworn in to the Army. And then we did not have weapons and we didn't have uniforms yet, So, but we did start a march down to the city supply place where we would get our guns and those things. And then we boarded a train to go to Harrisburg where we believed we would be able to enlist. But we were turned away. And we were turned away basically on a technicality. The technicality was that we would have to agree to three-year service. And we had no idea of that or anything, and so when we got there, we were sent back to Philadelphia. However, the Secretary of War Stanton, when he heard about that, he was extremely angry, and he ordered the general to accept black volunteers, and that's exactly what happened. However, I never went back to enlist because. I felt that my talents would be better served in recruitment, because I knew so many young black men, I decided to put my concentration on recruitment. And I would use a that banner that was signed by 56 African Americans, including my father, and Frederick Douglass. And I said, it's now or never, and if we fail to act, a whole race is going to be doomed. And one of the comments I put on there was to silence the tongue of calumny. To silence the tongue of calumny is basically a lie, a demeaning representation of a person. In other words, African black men were seen as being cowards, as being Mm. useless on the battlefield. And I appealed to those young black men that this is what they are saying about you and you need to prove them wrong. And on the poster that I use to recruit, I make references to places where former slaves rose up and fought against the confederates and two of those places were one was port hudson and the other one was milliken's bend you see because as the union army started to move into areas like south carolina they would see that there were enslaved people that were there and their owners ran away. So when the Union generals came to them, they say, listen, why don't you join the fight to defeat the Confederates? And many of them did, and they were given uniforms, and they were trained, and they were involved in the battles. So the challenge that I had to free black men was, are you less brave? then those former slaves picked up weapons and fought for the end of slavery.
1: Boy, that's super interesting. It, it is a good thing that you didn't go to the battlefield. Throughout history, there are some people that shouldn't have been on the battlefield that should have been doing things like recruiting and organizing and holding the whole thing together. And, yeah, really? that's it's amazing. Boy, that general, I can just imagine standing, finding out from that general that he turned back a bunch of people that, are willing to go run into bullets. I mean, how many people do you have that are willing to run into bullets? You know what I mean? And to turn those people away, that's crazy.
0: Well, yeah, that's what Secretary of War Stanton thought. And he said, no, that's insane. You will accept those black men. Like (laughs) I say, Pennsylvania was really in a desperate situation because the Confederates had won several battles. And now they're marching up here in the Pennsylvania No more time for foolishness. Right. And it's also reminiscent of what happened in the Revolutionary War. Because initially, George Washington didn't want any black soldiers in the army. But again, as they're starting to lose battles, and as they're getting fewer whites who are volunteering to serve, that changed. So history tends to repeat itself, I think.
1: I understand that you've done some speaking. Do you enjoy speaking? And I'm curious if you have a favorite speech or a favorite line that you've said.
0: Well, I do enjoy addressing audiences and promoting. I think one of the speeches I remember was to a group of Christians in Philadelphia. And the issue was a right to ride on the streetcar. And I appealed to their Christianity to say, you know, this is an evil practice. Because I'm talking about after the Civil War is over, there are black men in uniform who are denied the right to get on a streetcar and ride it. Why? Because of the color. It was from the beginning that streetcars started in this city, it was whites only. And then, eventually, they would say, well, tell you what, we're going to let you ride, but you're not going to ride inside the streetcar. You have to ride outside the streetcar on the platforms that were outside of where the seats were. And again, it was just racism. And people didn't care that these were soldiers who had laid their lives down. For the benefit of this country, they didn't care. And like I said, there were a number of very prominent black people who were denied. I was one of them. William Still was one of them. I don't know if you ever heard of a gentleman by the name of Robert Smalls. Uh, Tell me about him. Robert Smalls was a black man who was enslaved, who served on a Confederate ship. And the officers of that ship didn't think that the slaves had any ability to do much mischief, so they would just go ashore and drink. Well, Robert Smalls and the others on that ship that were enslaved made a plan to steal the ship and bring it to the Union Army. And that's what they did. They stole the ship while the whites were aboard getting drunk. And they brought it to the Union Army. And actually, because they did it, they got a reward.
1: That's fantastic. They got a
0: reward. And Robert Smalls used that reward to purchase the plantation that he was a slave on.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is magnificent. he
0: he became the first black captain of a naval ship. Oh, that's and amazing. on one occasion, you see at Philadelphia Navy Yard, his ship had gotten damaged in battle. So he had to come to Philadelphia, to the Philadelphia Navy Yard to get repairs. And during that time, he's trying to ride on a streetcar, and he is thrown off. Now, he's a national hero. His picture and his whole story was basically in every newspaper in the North. And his whole story was there. But now he, who was a hero, wasn't allowed on the streetcar. And I do think it was helpful in raising awareness of this injustice because the story of what happened to him actually was published in newspapers, and it brought a lot of of attention to this issue that people who had laid their lives down for this country weren't given the right to ride on a streetcar in this city.
1: So w- with the streetcars, you have to pay to ride the streetcar, right? That's right. You so pay- not
0: only can you ride
1: on it, but you can't pay to ride on it.
0: Yeah, you could pay. You're going to ride, but you're not going to fit out.
1: Right, you gotta ride on the outside, okay.
0: You're gonna ride on the outside. And over time, this became a big issue and people started to really protest this thing because families wanted to visit officers that were wounded in the hospital, they had no way to get there. And all of this kind of really started to prick the hearts of some people. So like I said, the mayor got involved and what they did was, they put together a poll of white streetcar riders to say, hey, is it okay if they ride? And the poll came back, 4,000, no, 200, yes. And as a result of that, they designated every fourth streetcar as a colored car. And of course, this was not a situation that was okay. So I, along with two other black people, we went to Harrisburg and we met with the lawmakers.
1: If a streetcar came by that was only okay for blacks, right. Could white could whites ride on it?
0: They would. They could, but they probably wouldn't. Okay, all right. All right. Keep going. Harris Because Harrisburg. again they had already voted that no, we don't want to ride with black people. Okay. So anyway, we went to Harrisburg We met with the lawmakers and we discovered that actually, years before, this had been proposed to end the segregation, but it was voted down. So what I and the other committee members did, we actually took that bill that had been voted down and we rewrote it to include a $500 penalty for anybody, who violated the law uh-huh. and this could may surprise you but it actually passed it passed the our rewrite passed the Pennsylvania legislature did it solve the problem and, well not exactly because still in Philadelphia there were streetcar drivers that wouldn't let you on if you were black but my girlfriend the my the woman I'm engaged to Carolyn LeCount, she saw to it there was a situation where she was denied. And what she did was she wrote down the number of the streetcar and went to Philadelphia court. And after getting a copy of the new law, the streetcar company that had refused to let blacks ride on it was fined, And they were forced. So you had to, people began to follow that up. That if people broke the law, you report them, and see to it that they were fined. And eventually, that practice of not allowing black people on streetcars went away.
1: Then they just grumbled, but they still, but they allowed it.
0: But they allowed it because we're gonna we're gonna follow through. We're gonna get the number. We have the evidence that you did it, and you're gonna be fine. So people didn't like paying fined. So eventually they did allow.
1: You think about what a simple thing this is. I mean, we're not talking about I and mean, this is just a matter of somebody needing to get from one place to the next. And you've got to fight and scratch and just like it takes so much work just to say, hey, could we get a lift going from this place to that place? Because, you know, we got to be somewhere like everybody else. I mean, your, your dad makes the first Black church. You're in the first baseball game, and it's just all just constant struggle. Like, how do you stay motivated when you're always swimming against the stream?
0: I want to make a correction. He, my dad, didn't start the church. He was a minister at the church at one time. Oh, okay. okay, but to answer the question, how do you keep on by faith? You know that you have to endure in what you are trying to do. It can't be something that I'm tired and I'm finished with this. No, you have to be persistent and you have to be in door because you see you have faith that one day it's gonna be right. And you just draw on that faith and you draw on that determination that one day it's going to be right in this country for black people.
1: I've got just a a few questions left to ask you, and I'm very thankful for all this time. So yeah, just a couple, just a couple last questions I want to ask. The first one is about women. Black men have not been treated very well in the history of America, and it certainly mm. does get better. I mean, even in our time, we've had a black president, and but mm. they have not been treated very well, but women have, have been treated as bad or worse, possibly, mm. and especially black women, I would say. I'm curious yeah. what you how you feel about the necessity for fighting for women's right to vote and you know is that as important as fighting for the men's right to vote I mean wh- what are your feelings on the representation that women
0: need right now I'm going to say that I take a scriptural view of that and the scriptural view of that is that women are to be treasured women are to be given an opportunity to have a happy life and to be respected. I think that, and, and I've given you a couple of examples, I personally saw where women were chosen over men to have certain positions because of their ability. I mentioned before about Carolyn LeCount, who is a 21-year-old woman who's the leader of a school. She's the principal of a school. And I think that it is certainly wrong for men to oppress or abuse women. But I also would like to leave room for the idea that women are also to be supportive of men. And that they can work together Without the idea that you are nothing and I am everything. Because both are important. It's like parts of a body. They perform different functions, but they are equally as important. Yeah. And so that's the way I look at women. I'm not looking for them to us- usurp authority over men. I'm looking for men and women to work together in the way that, that they should work together. That makes sense.
1: Have you ever heard the name Frank Kelly?
0: Frank Kelly? No, I don't, I don't know him.
1: I feel like I need to hang up the phone and call your father next. He sounds like such an
0: interesting guy. But was he almost arrested at some point? Oh, yes. That's how we got to Philadelphia. You see, he became increasingly disenchanted as to what was going on in South Carolina. He actually was a minister in a church that allowed free and enslaved, as well as white people, to all attend the same church. Now, he was granted leadership in that church to hold kind of separate meetings for Africans, for black people, and he would address them. But when he did that, All of the black people had to be in the balcony. None were allowed on the main floor. And he really thought it was very difficult to minister the way he wanted to minister. So he actually became the first black man to be authorized by the Presbyterians to do missionary work in Liberia. Now, my father also liked to write letters of encouragement to black people. And in one of those letters, he encouraged people to keep the fires burning. That letter was intercepted by the authorities. And Uh. it was identified as, oh, look at him. He is promoting riots. But it wasn't what he was saying. Fire in the context that he was making it was keep your determination
1: right it's a you metaphor
0: know, he, you don't give up on this idea of freedom and equality for all black people don't do that but the authorities took it a different way
1: it's the exact same thing that whites did with the bible for slavery they just took the words and said oh look he said burn the yeah. capitol down
0: yeah yeah so then what happened was My father had many friends and connections in Charleston. And they learned that there was now an arrest warrant that had been put out for him. And in addition to that, the Presbyterian Church withdrew their support for my father as well. And he got word that they're coming to arrest you and they know if he's trying to board that ship for Liberia, he's going to be arrested. Wow. So they flee, we flee to Philadelphia.
1: That's how it happened.
0: And that's what happened because, and we were glad to flee to Philadelphia because Philadelphia was a beacon of hope for black people in those states. because there's something like 20,000 free black people here in the city that were really very well established. I mean, these business owners, they got churches, they got black churches, you got all these things. You got a community that supports one another and working together. So they were, you know, we were really excited to be able to come and take refuge in Philadelphia.
1: Gosh, that's interesting. So, so many decisions. One bad decision, you know, a pause where maybe he decided to go a different direction on that. Everything in your life and his life could have changed. I mean, just one decision.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I could be in Liberia right now. That's right, that's what I mean. i could be in Liberia. God knows what you'd be doing in Liberia. (laughs) Oh, who knows what I'd be doing in Liberia. But you see, I think, and again, you say, okay, well, how come you're not doing this, or how come you're doing that? Again, I do believe there's a higher power that orchestrates everything. Hmm. I don't believe it was his intention for me to be in Liberia. I believe, and or my father, I believe that this happened so that we would come to Philadelphia and we would fulfill the destiny that was laid out for us in Philadelphia, not Liberia, so I all got a reason,
1: yeah, well, last question I want to ask you, and then, if you'd like to close with anything, anything you want to share i'd I'd love to hear any maybe suggestions you have for future generations, whatever's on your mind, but When you read about your history, because there's definitely some Mm. writing about it, when you read about it, you're referred to as an educator, an intellectual, and a civil rights activist. If you could only Mm. pick one of those, what do you think you're the most?
0: I would, first of all, like to exchange equal rights for civil rights. That would be the first thing I would want to do. Okay. You see, because. Civil is merely the laws that get passed. Equal is a state of being. So my preference would always be that I advocated for equal rights and that the civil rights would follow from that, not Um. to look at civil rights as a separate entity to be exalted when you still don't have equality.
1: I got it. The laws follow the equality. Right. Yeah. Not
0: just being satisfied where, oh, this was passed and this amendment was passed and this, no. I understand the progress there, but what has to come through is equality, period.
1: Well, I'm not going to take any more of your time. I know you got a busy day and people running around acting like crazy people because it's election day and trying to keep one hand on the scale so it stays balanced. Is there anything that you'd like to leave for future generations that might listen to this, or anything you'd like to say?
0: Yeah, if I could just touch briefly on my father's experience in that church where I said there were whites, blacks, and free blacks, and enslaved blacks. And in that church, my father explained to me there was like this hierarchy for Sunday service. The whites, they're sitting in the front of the church. The free Blacks sit behind the whites on the first floor. And all of the enslaved Blacks, they have to sit on the balcony. And there already was a tension between the free Blacks and the enslaved Blacks. You see, because some of the free Blacks would take air and they would consider themselves to be far better than the enslaved Blacks. And in fact, some of the free Blacks were slave owners, and the enslaved Blacks that were in the balcony would often glare down with looks of hatred on the free Blacks, because some of them sort of took air. That arrangement in church went on for a while until one Sunday, the whites said, no, all of you go up to the balcony. You don't have, you free blacks, you do not have any right to be on this first floor anymore. So the free blacks had to go up and join the enslaved blacks who hated them. And what they would do is they would try and make it difficult for the free blacks to find a place to sit on the second floor. And some of the free blacks had hats. And so when you sat down in the church, you take off the hat. Some of the slaves would spit in the hat (laughs) of a free black man. Now, I say this to you to bring up the idea of the importance of unity within the black community. Because you see, that particular situation indicated a disunity. <laughs> and it indicated that within the black community, there was a class system. We're better than you, enslaved ones. And if there's something that I would hope that would happen in the future, is that people in the black community who were starting to excel and were starting to get all kinds of resources, they wouldn't look down on those Blacks that didn't have it. And they would be looking to uplift them rather than to just look down on them. Because in the end, the reality is, and especially at that time, white people didn't care whether you're free or you're enslaved, you're still inferior. And so that points out a need for unity within the black community where those that have benefit, that have resources, they're looking to uplift others in the community rather than to look down on them.
1: United we stand, divided we fall.
0: That's it. Because if black people can be raised up to their full potential, That benefits not only the black community, but the entire community as well.
1: OB, thank you very much for your time. And again, I appreciate it. Best wishes to you and be careful today.
0: All right. All right. Thank you.
1: Octavius Cattle was a great man. Despite the tremendous odds of getting an education at all, he graduated at the highest level in a challenging school. Then... Instead of using his brilliant mind to make a fortune, he gave back to the community and dedicated his life to service. But Cattle wasn't only fighting for the black man, he was fighting for all of us. When the war needed soldiers, Cattle recruited young black men to fight and die for our country because he understood that we were stronger together regardless of our color, and that we accomplished more by lifting everyone up rather than holding a few down. When he spoke about the baseball game and making the agreement with the team not to argue about any of the calls, I couldn't help but be amazed at how far into the future he could see. Certainly, they wanted to win the game. No doubt they were getting unfair treatment by the refs. But despite wanting to win, his desire for that game to have a positive impact on the community was greater. Had they won that first game? Who knows? It could have set back interracial competitive sports by 50 years. But by losing, and probably knowing that they could win the next game, it allowed both sides what they needed to move forward. On Caddo's gravestone, there is a picture of him and the words, The Forgotten Hero. But I suspect a title like that might not have bothered him at all, because being remembered wasn't his goal. It probably would have been enough for him to know how much progress has been made towards equality and that others continue to fight for that cause. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe or tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, a chicken somewhere crosses the road without being questioned. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.